things. God's perfected praise. So go ahead and we'll dismiss our children and those who are working with our children. Lexi, are you going out this morning? Are you going to go out and help? Okay. Your mom's going to take good notes for you, okay? <laughs> Our passage is children, obey your parents in the Lord. So, <laughs> Lexi's a good girl, yes. She, she's very compliant, very obedient. At least in class she is. I don't know how she is at home, but she's, you've raised her well, Barbara and Jose. Um, like I was saying, we had about eight people who came forward and said, I just want to publicly say, Christ is my Savior. This is what I used to be. I'm not that anymore. This is who I am in Christ. Um, I think Dennis was thinking the rapture was going to happen. I mean, he was just glowing. <laughs> he said, why don't we do this every Sunday? And so, uh, you know, we can. You know, if there's others that want to come this Sunday and say, I want to share my testimony. This is where God is drawing me. This is where I want to be uh, committed. Um, but tonight we're going to have something special. We try to do it once a month, but during the summer we postponed it. But tonight we're going to get together at the De La Rosa's house. The address is in your bulletin. And why this is special is because most of us, if you look around, those who are here have just started coming in the last year. So you might say, well, I don't know any of the other members. Well, I think everybody else feels the same way. We don't really know each other because God has brought us together from different backgrounds all over the place. And yet we've got one theme, and that is we love Christ, and we love his word, and we love each other. And so tonight gives us a chance to get to know each other, to fellowship with each other. So that'll be it. Um, Barb and Jose's tonight. The address is in the bulletin, and um, we'll have a time of sharing food with each other, um, and then uh, a short devotional, but more than anything, it's to spend time getting to know each other. When, uh, when Caleb was singing <coughs> that second worship song this morning, Who is Like Our God? I couldn't help but think of a passage of Scripture that talks about that very question, who is a God like our God? So this isn't my sermon this morning, but maybe you might just need this this morning. The Holy Spirit just brought this verse instantly to my mind, and I thought, God, you wanted me to share this. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, who passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? Who is a God like that? Who is a God who does not retain his anger forever? Who is a God that delights in mercy? He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. When you come to Christ, he doesn't just forgive you. He subdues our iniquities. He sets you free from your iniquities. You are dead with Christ, and you've put on the new man that's resurrected to walk in the power of Christ. He forgives us, but He also subdues our iniquities. He will cast all of our sins. If you're troubled about your past, claim this. Who's a God like this? 
who says, I don't remember your past sins. I will cast all of your sins in the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from of old. God made a promise to Abraham. And the callings and the gifts of God are irrevocable. God is still going to show his mercy to Abraham and to his descendants. And right now, God has got a parenthesis in time, so to speak, between Daniel's 69th week and Daniel's 70th week. And we're living in that parenthesis right now. And in the last days, perilous times are going to come. And one of the things that's going to be indicative of this generation is children will be disrespectful to their parents. And we're going to see a generation that walks away from laws and discipline and self-control. I watched on the news the other night, teenagers by the thousands looting and destroying private property as if they had a license to do it. We're living in times where discipline and law and order have gone out the window in the last days, perilous times are going to come. And we're living in that parenthesis period, and I think we're living really, really at the edge of the last days. I was talking to a brother this morning, Jordan, and he, by his conscience, decided, I hope it's okay if I share this, Jordan. Okay. I've already started, huh? <laughs> but... Uh, He said, my body has been bought with a price. I belong to the Lord, and I just don't feel right about the vaccine mandate. He works for the U.S. government. He's a military man. He's uh, on the weekends. He's not here a lot of times. And Maybe God just says, okay, I want you here all the time now. But um, he showed up for work last Sunday. I told him to go home. He was being dismissed. I thank God for a man who says, I'm going to stand for my principles. It's going to cost me. Cost him that extra income. Cost him his friendships there with a lot of people. But we're living in those times. Chris Ruiz sent me a letter that she wrote. I helped another person in our church write a letter this week. And one of the things that we as believers need to stand for is that There is an antichrist system coming, and it's going to mandate to you and I, and I'm not saying the vaccine is the number 666 or it's the mark of the beast, or if you've gotten the vaccine, you've sold out. That's not at all what I want to imply whatsoever, because if you, under good conscience, made that decision and you felt that that was best for your health and your circumstances, that's between you and God alone, okay? That which is not of faith is sin, and if you've done it by faith, then, then, then that's between you and the Lord. But to mandate it on someone else who says, no, I, I don't feel this is right for me in my circumstances, I think one of the, the, the precursors of an antichrist system is a globalization and a pressure that you will not be able to make an income, you will not be able to go into stores and buy and sell unless you comply to this global mandate. Never, never in history 
has a mandate been universalized where this is being forced on the entire world, not just America. This is happening globally. And we just need to, to be prepared as God's people for whatever persecution may ever come our way. And if it comes to anything that compromises the word of God in your life, I hope and pray that we as North Valley Bible Church will say, we will follow the Lord. That we will say as James, John, and Peter, and Andrew said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And, and, and we're living in times where, where our relationships in our homes are being undercut. They're being destroyed. Our relationships at work are being affected. And, and God has got a plan for all of those relationships. And that's what I want us to share this morning from the book of Ephesians. So let's go ahead and stand together as we read Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity or singleness of heart as to Christ, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same of the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Turn to one other book. Go past the book of Philippians and into the book of Colossians. Go past Philippians to Colossians chapter 3, starting with verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. You'll notice the parallels here. Colossians 3, 18. Wives, Submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness or sincerity of heart, fearing God, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for whatever he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, give to your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Father, God, you have given us a simple formula for every relationship, for every horizontal participation in this society and how believers are to interact. Whether you're a father or whether you're a mother, whether you're a parent or whether you're a child, whether you're an employee or whether you're an employer, God, every, every relationship you've included, somehow in this passage, we will fit into these categories, Lord. And God, you have given us a simple mandate. And as believers, Father, God, I pray for our church this morning. God, I pray that we will seek to please Christ. That that will be our goal, regardless of what people think about us regardless of our reputation, regardless of we are, whether we are popular or whether we get flack for it, God, I pray that we will seek to please Christ in every relationship that we have. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, finding God's will, it's, it's not like trying to walk through a maze and that God's trying to trip you up. <laughs> you know, people all, often ask me, well, well, how do I find God's will? Or how do I know what God's plan for my life is? And it's, it's not this fuzzy feeling that you've got to just say, oh, I, I just got this overwhelming sense that this is what God wants me to do. It's not like you're walking down the street and you, you slip on a banana peel and out of your pocket falls something, and it's pointing in this direction, you say, oh, God, you must want me to walk into that store. Yeah. Sometimes believers almost paralyze themselves because they overthink everything and say, well, is this God's will? Is that God's will? God's will is found in His Word, isn't it? God's will for Brendan is to obey his mom and to obey me. Yesterday, he, he wanted something, and it was kind of pricey. Now, was it God's will for him to have that? Now, he called his mother, and his mother, I was saying, mm, no. But his mom said, no. And you know what he did? He said, okay, I'm not, it's not time for me to have that right now. That was That's God's will. It's, is it? My will, is it God's will? God's will and my will are found in His Word. I have got certain responsibilities as a pastor and as a teacher. Very different roles. But I find God's will through His Word according to whatever role I'm at. Um, it's not like a jigsaw puzzle that I have to find all the pieces. There's one little command that, that I, I found helpful, and 
I've, as, a, as a coach, another role that I've often had is that I have given this verse to my son when he was running, still is running, but no longer under my tutelage, kind of doing his own thing now, and he's getting a lot better now that, now that I'm not coaching him. <laughs> Kelly, that's who I'm talking about. Um, no. <laughs> whatever you do, whatever you do, you do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. I, I was talking to this guy, and he wanted to know if God's will was going to be this horrible thing. He says, if, God wa- if it's God's will, it's got to be bad, right? It's got to be something I don't want to do. <laughs> and he was an incredible athlete. And he was so afraid that if he surrendered to God's will, he was going to have to play the flute or something in front of the church. And he couldn't carry a tune. He <laughs> and I looked at him and he says, that is not God's will for you. How has God created you? What gifts has God given you? What talents have God, has God given you? What desires has God given you? Then that is God's will. Tracy and I, when we went to Ireland, we knew it was God's will for us to go to Ireland, not because we had some kind of fuzzy feeling, and one morning I opened up the box of cereal and I grabbed a Lucky Charms out and said, oh, God must want me to go to Ireland. I had a passion to go to Ireland all my life. I couldn't tell you why other than that my grandfather was a first generation from, from Ireland, and I was named Patrick in honor of that. And my grandfather used to instill in me that I was Irish. When I was a little kid, um, we used to talk about ethnicity a lot more today, a lot more back then, than, because people immigrated to America a lot more, and, and so you were very proud of where you derived from. And I had, a, I had a teacher in middle school. His name was Mr. Schultz. Of course, he was from Germany, and he used to brag about the Germans and all their great engineering and all their... Uh, and uh, he just, one day he started just, just ragging on the Irish, you know, and, and, and how they were, you know, took all the, the jobs that nobody wanted and that they were untrustworthy. And so my grandfather, he taught me what to say when somebody started giving out to the Irish. So I raised my hand. He says, Patrick, he says, what do you want to say? And I says, I got something to say, Mr. Schultz. I says, you know what I would, I would be if I wasn't Irish? He says, No. My grandfather said, tell him I'd be ashamed of himself. <laughs> and that didn't go over too good with Mr. Scholes. <laughs> but I said, but I always wanted to go to Ireland. My wife and I, before we were married, we went on a picnic up in Fort Yukon. And we went out on the Suck River. And we were laid out our blanket, and we just got talking. And I said, Tracy, I says, is there any place that you'd like to go someday? And she looked at me, she says, I want to go to Ireland. Do you remember that? Well, God started stirring in our hearts about the mission field. We lived in Georgia. And I'm not kidding you. Within, If I took a pinpoint and drew a mile radius circle from our church, Trinity Baptist Church, and I did a one-mile radius circle, there would have been eight other evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-teaching, preaching churches within... Floyd County is where we lived in. There were 72 Southern Baptist churches alone in Floyd County. 
We were tripping over each other. You know how our church grew? We grew from borrowing from Rome Baptist Temple and from First Baptist Church, and they didn't like the pastor there. They'd come and visit our church, and they got tired of me. They would go into another. I mean, it was just like, I mean, you had a, a, one of those doors, rotating doors on your churches that people just got in and out, in and out. We had one guy who came to our church because the pastor was mad that he watched, wore a pair of shorts across his parking lot and scolded him. So he showed up at our church the next Sunday. I mean, it was ridiculous. And Tracy and I said, God, where do you want us to go? God didn't just give us some kind of neon sign. We just started reading the Bible together. We were reading the life of Abraham. And we were studying God's word, and that's how you find God's will. Now, I am not preaching anything on my notes today, so I don't know why I'm doing this. But maybe I'm just trying to help you. So we were reading the life of Abraham. And God spoke to Abraham and said, leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land that I will show you. Abraham did not know where he was going. He went out as a sojourner, not knowing where God was going to lead him, but God knew he told him to leave where you were. We had been in Rome, Georgia for 10 years. We were raising our family there. We were getting comfortable there. Had a beautiful white house up on a hill and 15 acres of pasture land. Now, we didn't own any of it, but we got God used, owned it, and he let us live on it. But, I mean, we had, a, had every reason to stay. Yet God was saying, leave where you're at. Go to a place that I will show you. The very next day, I went off to work. I worked at Shorter University. I was the assistant athletic director and the head cross-country coach. And I had some brochures that I had saved from a mission organization 10 years earlier. I grabbed it out. They were located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. I called them. I made an appointment to go down and meet with them the next day. I came home that night, and I said, Tracy, we've got an appointment to meet with the head of a mission board tomorrow. She goes, wow, that was fast. We talked about it the night before in bed when we were reading the Bible together. The next day, we're heading to a mission board to talk to the president of the mission. We're sitting there talking about our gifts and our calling, and a guy knocks on the door. And he had just come back from Ireland. And Tracy and I just perk up. His name was Jerry Smith. And he begins us to tell us what the Irish country is like, what their culture is like. The city of Limerick, where they want to plant the next church, it's the athletic training center for the entire country of Ireland. The University of Limerick is there. I'm working at a university. They have a coach's training center there. I've run in the Olympic trials, and the culture sounded exactly like Tracy and I. Hospitality is the way you meet people, the way the churches grow there. It's by personal relationships. We went home, and we knew that this is where God wanted us to go. It wasn't like we had to just kind of figure it all out. My wife got extremely ill when we were in Ireland after 10 years. It wasn't like God had to say, this is really going to be complicated for you. No, it was if we stayed here any longer, my wife, her health was going down so rapidly. We would walk one block from our house, and she'd have to sit on the curb. She'd be shaking. Now, me as a runner, I kept saying, Tracy, all you need to do is get out and exercise. I mean, just run it out of you, whatever you got. Just, you know. And I was running her into the ground, literally. She would get up at 8 o'clock in the morning, and by 10, she'd be back in bed. I'd come home at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and she'd still be asleep. She had candida. She had yeast infections. She had parasites. 
her thyroid was underactive, and they wouldn't give her medication in Ireland for it. I didn't have to pray and say, God, what is your will? My will, Patrick, for you is to love your wife like Christ loves the church. You send her home. You find a doctor that will treat her, and you get into an environment that's not got all this rain. I mean, literally, it, I kid you not, it rains five out of five days in Ireland. I, I'm not, not exaggerating. I, I've got a, my, I keep Limerick on my phone app. don't have my phone with me. But anyway, I, I'll keep it on there just because I like to look at the weather. And it's rain, rain. It's, it's, and the climate right now in Ireland, it gets dark at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the sun comes up at 9.30 in the morning. Her body was shutting down. We couldn't live there. That was God's will for us to come back. You know what? The doctor said, find a climate that's dry that has mostly sunny days. So here we are in Utah. <laughs> I'm looking at the forecast. I'm wondering, are we going to get a snow pack in the mountains? This, I think we need to start praying, don't we? Yes. Uh, but So that's how we arrived here. God's will is found through his word. I, I remember coming home from college. I had a sociology degree. That's about as useless, and I don't use my dad's words. My dad was a high school counselor. I'm sorry, teenagers, but my dad worked with counselor as a counselor. Michael, I'm just teasing you. This is what my dad said. But my dad, after working as a high school counselor for 40 years, he took early retirement. He says, I'm done. He says, there's nothing dumber than a teenager. <laughs> he said, their brains don't develop until about they're 23 or 24. He says, especially a teenage boy. He says, you have got to be brutally blunt with a teenage boy. So I came home from college, and I was a sociology major. Now, what in the world do you do with a sociology major? Nothing. You do nothing. You might as well spend four years in a wood shop because then you'd be able to do something. Seriously. So I came home, and I've got this big heart that I want to help people. So I come in and talk to my dad. He was at Walnut High School. And I come in during lunch. I said, Dad, I said, you know, I got some, uh, something I want to run by you. I said, Dad, I want to join the Peace Corps. And he looked up at me, and he said, why? He says, what can you do? He says, are you an engineer? Can you help build a foundation? Are you an electrician? Do you know how to wire anything? He says, do you know how to dig a well to find water? Do you have any degree that can help anybody in a foreign country who's living in a third world, third world uh, environment? I said, no. He says, you'd about, he, this is what he said. He says, you'd be about as useless as a bucket of spit. <laughs> that, that was my dad. Now, he didn't talk to the high school kids that way. He talked to me that way. And I said, okay, Dad, it's not God's will for me to go into the Peace Corps, is it? He says, no. And I said, what about seminary? He says, I think that's what God would have you do. That's where God would use you, Patrick. 
children, you want to know God's will, obey your parents. They know you, they've trained you, they have watched your gifts, they understand your personality, they know your passions, they know what makes you operate. And they support you. And if you're a parent today, support what your child is doing. If you're a grandparent today, support their passions. Encourage it. Promote it. Do all that you can to encourage them in a positive way. Right before this passage in Ephesians that we're going to study today, Paul wrote these words. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Husbands, what is the will of the Lord for you? Your will is God's will, and that is to love, to protect, to sanctify, to cleanse, and take care of your bride the same way that Jesus would take care of us as His people. Wives, what is God's will for you? It's to follow the leadership, follow the direction of your husband. When your husband is walking with the Lord and in touch with God, you can trust Him as your spiritual head. Last Sunday, we heard some beautiful testimonies. And this morning, Allie's going to share a little bit of her testimony. But one of the things that struck me is that she knew God's will because she was committed to Sean as her husband and as her spiritual headship. It wasn't some mystery for her. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice the phrase, in the Lord. This is important. Our behavior needs to be under the sphere of what Christ wants us to do. If it's out of that, then we don't have to obey. We don't submit to that. The word to obey primarily means to listen. It's a compound word. The second half of that word is akuo, where we get the word acoustic, and it means to hear. It's got a preposition attached to the front of it, affixed to it. The preposition is hoopo, which means to be under, like a hoopopotamus or a hoopodermic needle. So literally, the word means to be an under-listener. You hear, but you put yourself under that authority, and you conform to their consent and to their wishes. That's what it means to obey. You have a responsibility in the Lord to do this. The word in the Lord tells us that this is God's design from creation, but it's also God's design by decree. I think 99% or 95% of God's will is found in explicit decrees in His Word. I read a book a long time ago. It was called Finding God's Will... Just do it. And the book started out with Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
The entire chapter was do whatever you want to do. Boy, I like that. Just do whatever you want to do, provided you're submitting to the authority that's over you, that you're willing to suffer, that you're willing to be a servant, those three S's, and that you are delighting yourself in the Lord. And then whatever that desire is, you follow it with all your heart. Pretty simple, isn't it? I think of Mitch this morning. He has submitted himself to three pastors here in Utah. He is serving this local body. He has surrendered, and if God so be it that he's going to have to suffer, he'll say yes. But God has given him and three other young men a desire to plant churches because that's what he's delighting in. He's delighting in God, and God says, this is what I want you to do. That's God's will for him and those other three men, the other two men, to, to plant a church here in Utah. It's that simple that if we will follow God's word with suffering, submission, and servitude, delighting ourselves totally in God, then we do whatever God has put on our hearts to delight to do. It is right to obey your parents. Conversely, disobedience is the willful, willful, willful rejection of authority, which is the essence of all sin. That's what you want to define sin. Sin is the rejection of all authority. Willful rejection of authority. It's not complicated. That's what sin is. Sin is to miss the mark. I know that. But how does it picture out and, 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 and how does it flesh itself out? It's a willful rejection of the authority in your life. And that is not God's will for you, is it? So children, you can find God's will so simply. This is the first commandment. And it's the first commandment that's accompanied with a promise. So let's look at this promise. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Now let's just let's stop for a second. I want to back up to the word honor. Because there's two different ideas, obey and to honor. Obey is an action. And you can obey outwardly. And this isn't just for children. This is for every one of us this morning. We can conform to an outward standard of obedience. Every one of us can. And we've had children like that, haven't we? You discipline them. You tell them to do something, and they do it, but you know in their heart that they are cursing mom and dad in their heart, so to speak. I had a little an incident with my, my daughter, and I'll be careful because I don't want to slander. She's a good girl, good daughter. But we had a, a problem with some neighbors, and they came to me, and they asked me to have my daughter come and apologize. Now, my daughter was compliant, and she obeyed. And she went up there to their house, and she stood like a little statue, like a little robot, and she said, I am sorry. And Cassie and I had a long talk on the way home. And we had to get to the heart, didn't we? And this is what God wants, not just for children. He wants this for every one of us. There's principles in every one of these mandates, not just for children, but for every one of us. 
God wants us much more than just to observe an outward practice of obedience. God wants us to honor that authority. Whether it's Christ, whether it's your pastor, whether it's your boss at work, God is much more concerned about our hearts. He says to obey, but he says also to honor. The Hebrew word to honor that he's translating from means you affix a great value to that person's authority in their position. And that's the way God wants children to do this. That's the way God wants all of us to do things. This combination is biblical trust. Let me give you an illustration of a child. It's a true story who not only obeyed, but just trusted and honored what his father told him to do. His father was a, a switchman at a railroad yard. And this was back in the early 1900s. And his little boy just loved his dad. And they would get up every morning and they would have breakfast together and he would pack his lunchbox for him. And off he would go and he would come home at night and his little boy would be waiting for him. And his little boy said, I want to go and work with my dad today. Well, his dad worked not too far from the house, about a, about a mile and a quarter or so, and he walked to the railroad crossing. And his job was to warn the trains. If two trains were coming, he would hit, hit the lights or he would uh, hit the switch to, to make the tracks uh, part. And so he was there, and there were two trains coming. He pulled the switch. One train was going to go this way. The other train was going to go that way. And when he looked over to see, to look at the train tracks, one, that little boy had followed him and was sitting on the tracks. He didn't have time, and he knew that he couldn't change because he would cause these two trains to collide. The only thing he could do was shout out an order to his little son, whom he had taught to obey him and to trust him, to honor him. And he shouted at the top of his lungs, Billy, lay down now. Billy, lay down now. The trains passed and he walked over not knowing what kind of carnage he might see. And his little boy was still laying there in between the tracks, not touched by the train. Now that was a little boy who not only obeyed, but implicitly trusted his father. He said, yes, dad, I trust you. Doesn't ask questions. If that had been me, I'd probably been dead because I would have said, why? Or I said, what? Or when? This is the way God wants us to obey Him, isn't it? I was talking with Barbara this morning, and something happened in her life where she just said, you know, God, I'm just going to have to trust you with this. I don't understand it right now. We've been praying for this situation, and we're hoping for this to be accomplished this week, and we're praying about it, and God, we've got everything set for it. And then she gets a notice saying, it's not going to happen this week. Today, she tells me that if that plan had gone through, it would have cost them a huge amount financially. But God had something planned. We obey God. We trust God. He's got our interests at heart. And we as parents, as grandparents, we need to instill this into our children because they will miss God if they don't understand who mom and dad's position are. 
I promise you, if a kid has no respect, has rebellion, has disrespect and dishonor for parents, they will not understand God as their heavenly father and willing to submit and trust his guidance and leading. Fathers and parents in general, what is our responsibility? What is our responsibility as a church? Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up, the opposite, bring them up in the nurture or the training and admonition of the Lord. Stop provoking. It's an imperative command in the present tense. It means stop what you're doing. And the idea is that an authority figure often will transgress in this area. They will take their authority, they will take their position and take it too far. That is the danger that Paul is warning against. And every one of us, if God has given us a position of authority or leadership, we know that danger, we know that temptation is also real. And what happens when we take that too far? It says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, it says, do not irritate your child. And it says, lest they be discouraged. The Greek word has got a little word alpha in front of it. That means not. The next word is thumos, which means hot, like a thermos. And what Paul is saying, he says, when you are overbearing, when you are too harsh, what you do is you take all the joy, you take all the passion, you take all the fervency, and your child will just do this out of compulsion, not because of desire. And as overseers, as teachers, as parents, as mothers, as fathers, we have got to be so careful not to take away the passion, not to take away that drive, not to quench the heat of that child. As a coach, I watched this over and over and over again when I was at the University of Louisiana Tech. I had got injured. I had a coach who was belligerent, who was unkind, and all it did, it took all the joy, all the passion out of running. I'll never forget one guy who was a great 5,000-meter runner. He would have been an incredible athlete. And the coach was always hounding him, always giving out to him, always just telling me he'd never succeed. And in the 5,000 of the conference race, he hollers out, name was Jeff Darling. We called him J.D. He says, in the coach house, he says, that's the way, J.D. You're on the back, just like you always are. I looked up, and J.D. walked off the track. It was his last race as a college athlete. And he looked at the coach. I'll never forget what he said. He said, reverse psychology only works on morons. And he walked away. He had been given this reverse psychology, thinking this was going to motivate him, and all it did did was destroy his passion, his joy for running. J.D. left college and he never ran again. I was spared by some injuries and then that coach was fired and I found a coach that just was so passionate. He would run with me, he loved running, and he encouraged me with so many positive things. And when I got injured, I got bit by a brown recluse spider my last year when I was coaching with him. And he says, Patrick, he says, one day you're going to run in the Olympic trials. When I qualified for the Olympic trials, that was the first person I called after I called my wife. I called that coach. 
because he didn't discourage me. He didn't put out that passion. He didn't put out that fire. And so if you are over somebody and God has given you that position of authority, don't exasperate them. Encourage them. Say positive things. Infuse them with hope. And this is what fathers are supposed to do. And they are to bring somebody up to the point of maturity. So they are responsible adults. And we do that by two things. Training and warning. Positive and negative. The training, the word training is used four times in Hebrews chapter 4. I'm sorry, four times in Hebrews chapter 12. Every time it's translated chastisement. The Greek word is padia, where we get pediatrics to train a child or to treat a child. And it's translated four times to chastise, but chastise doesn't just mean to take a paddle and spank a bottom. That's not what biblical chastisement is. Chastisement means that you nurture that person, you bring out their character in punishment that's intended to cultivate a child's character and a child's morals. It's corrective training to produce holiness that produces peaceable fruits of righteousness. And that is a father's responsibility, to bring up a child with training that will cause them to be morally and emotionally equipped to handle responsibility in life. The next word is admonition. It's only used one other time in the Bible. It's used in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, which says, all those things happened in the, in the wilderness for the children of Israel for our admonition. It means that we can learn by dangerous things that will happen. To warn, this is what will happen if you do these things. And a father is to do that. Fathers, warn your child lest they lose their passion and fervency. Train them. Don't go overbearing. Now we get to servants. And we're really out of time. And that's primarily my fault. It's all my fault. Not, you know, it's all fault. You're listening good. <laughs> uh, but I got kind of on a rabbit trail here. But... Servants, let me just sort of summarize servants here. Every one of us has got a job, don't we? And some days, work is just work, isn't it? It's not enjoyable. Some days, you're looking at your watch. You say, when is this going to get over? Some days, your boss is not a pleasant guy to be around. Paul is going to help every one of us here. And, and what he's saying is that I will take the, the dundrums, I will take the boredom, I will take the lack of zeal, and I will show you how to put joy back into work. I, I remember my son, who's a Navy SEAL, he left the Navy SEALs, left his work for the military, and came back home, and he was really struggling with his, his dad. He says, I really, I, 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 I hate work. <laughs> he says, I loved it when I was in the Navy. I loved it when I was working. And so I, I went to the book of Genesis with him. I says, what did God do when he kicked man out of the garden? He cursed the ground, didn't he? He said, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to make your income and your living. I says, first of all, Michael, 
God does not intend for you to find fulfillment through work. He created you to work, yes, but that is not where your fulfillment is going to be found. He is going to frustrate work. He's going to make work difficult because he wants you to seek him. You seek him and whatever you do in your work will become joy. I don't care if you're cleaning toilets. I don't care if you're a garbage man. If you get on that truck in the morning and you say, I am serving Jesus Christ my King. Look, I've had a lot of jobs. A lot of them weren't fun. <laughs> they were just jobs. I remember working when I was going through divinity school, starting at 7 o'clock in the morning, ending at 6 o'clock at night, doing heavy construction, building dormitories. And it was the most monotonous thing I've ever done. We built these, these, these uh, closet panels, and there were about 500 of them that had to go in each dormitory building. So literally, it was the same thing, room after room after room after room after room for 12 hours a day. I, and I tell you, but you know what made that work possible? I said, I am doing this for Jesus. I'm not doing this ultimately for Liberty University. I'm not doing it for Otto Stonefelder, who was my, my, my supervisor. I'm doing this for Jesus. And I, I used to drive the guys that I worked with nuts because we would sit down at break time and it would last 15 minutes and I'd look at my watch and I'd say, it's time to go back to work. And they would just hate me. <laughs> they didn't want to be stuck with Patrick. Nobody wanted to work with me. It wasn't because I was a bad guy, but no, because I was there to work and I loved what I was doing and I enjoyed it as I did it unto the Lord. And I was glad when the end of the summer came and I was able to quit that job as unto the Lord. But this is what God wants servants to do. We serve Jesus. And God will recognize everything that you do. I want to give you four little promises. One, in Hebrews chapter 6, God is not unfaithful to forget your labor of love which you show for His name. That's Hebrews chapter 6 and verse, um, verse 10, I believe. I want to give you another one. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Be steadfast, diligent, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. A second promise from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 24. All sincere service as seen unto Christ for you serve the Lord Christ. And then from Ephesians it says the one who does these things knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward. Let me just kind of conclude this. Masters, masters were supposed to do the same thing. The Bible never tried to get rid of slavery. Interesting, isn't it? But the Bible itself, when you take it to its natural conclusion, would abolish slavery. Now, when Paul wrote this, it was not the kind of slavery that we have in the Americas. Sixty million people were slaves in the Roman Empire. In fact, in Ephesus, which is Asia Minor, slaves outnumbered the free population. But slaves, again, they had no, no civil rights whatsoever in the Roman Empire. And so Paul, what he is writing is so radical, so ahead of his times. And these passages eventually convinced men like William Wilberforce, John Booth, um, uh, not 
yeah, John Bunyan, who, not, John Bunyan, who am I talking about here? Who wrote Amazing Grace? <laughs> John Newton. I'm thinking of, anyway, there was a John Bunyan. He wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I'm getting my authors mixed up. Okay. And another American evangelist named Charles Finney. These men took these passages to the natural conclusion. Masters, you do the exact same thing for your servants. And eventually, slavery was done away with in the Americas. But that's not my point this morning. My point is, is that, masters, you also have someone that's going to hold you accountable for what you do. What are five things that we can take home from this sermon? Five things. One, we all have mutual relationships and requirements, and every one of us are going to be held accountable for those relationships. Number two, in reality, every relationship, every position that you hold is an opportunity to serve Christ. So do it with singleness of heart. Do it with sincerity. Don't do it with eye service to gain their popularity or to, I mean, to gain their approval or to, 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 to gain popularity. Third, every menial task can be transformed by doing it into Christ. Joy is not always found in the task, but joy can be found when you're doing it for Christ and Him alone. Number five, God does not see as a man does. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. Every job for Christ will receive an eternal inheritance, for we serve the Lord Christ. Father, thank you today that every relationship is covered in the Bible. God, your will is not some complicated maze that I have to wind my way through it only to find a dead end. God, whatever my role is, I submit to that authority. I do it with all my heart. I do it to please you, and I do it with joy. God, thank you that you have given us a simple remedy for all the things that, Ill, that, that, that are illing our society today. Help us to apply these things in Jesus' name.